Hello from ABA Annual Meeting 2018 in Chicago, Illinois. I'm Lawrence Galetti. And I'm Hillary Bass, president of the American Bar Association. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us. It is, once again, my special treat to welcome back to the air the president of the ABA, Hillary Bass. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So I, I know I always ask this question when we get together, but uh, you know, some people may be tuning in and hearing some of these episodes for the first time. Maybe they haven't been to an annual meeting in a while. So let's share your bio. Where do you work and what do you do? I work at Greenberg Traurig in Miami, Florida. I'm the co-president and I'm a commercial litigator. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, we talked earlier at the mid-year meeting in Vancouver, which was awesome. Thank you for putting in Vancouver. I've never been to Vancouver before, and now I got to see it. So it was a great meeting, and you and I had talked about a lot of things and some of these these special uh, pillars that were part of your presidency. And so I think what I want to start with, and I think this was the one that really stood out to me um, because you had a lot to say about it early on, was women leaving the profession. Right. Well, that's a year-long study that we're just beginning to get the results on. And the question was, why is it that although women start their first job after law school pretty close to 50-50 with men, by age 50, we're down to about 26 or 27% of women that um, are left. So literally close to half of us are leaving in that first 20 to 25 years of practice. So we did three different types of surveys this year. One that compared the career trajectory of men and women after 20 years to sort of evaluate and compare where they ended up. One that was based on focus groups with women who were still in the profession and those that left to try and better understand why some made the decisions they did and others went in a different direction. And then we partnered with ALM to evaluate data from 350 of the largest law firms in the United States, along with sending out surveys of those law firms. So just on Friday, we started to announce the results, and we will be compiling them into a report. But basically, what we found was a continuing, very disturbing trend of women having very different long-term experiences as practicing lawyers than men have. The number one dislike of women in the law practice is the perception that they think they are being discriminated against based on their gender. So that pretty much sums up Lots of the results that we received. Was there, uh, now you said something kind of in, at the end, of, by the end of their career, there was a substantial amount that had dropped out of the legal profession. And so was there, did you find other age brackets there that may have indicated some other reasons uh, for leaving the profession or backing away from the, uh, the profession? Well, anecdotally, we always understood that a certain number of women leave in the first 10 years of practice, perhaps when they were having their second child mm-hmm. or other life balance issues compelled them to be the stay-at-home person. But what brought our attention to this study was the fact that we learned that women continued to leave even after their childbearing years. Hmm. And so we were focused on those women over the age of 50. And again, we're not trying to suggest that everybody in the profession should work until they're 75, far right, from right. it. But women should feel that there is a hospitable environment for them for as long as they do want to practice. And what we found is that is not the case, that most women conclude after many years of hitting their head against the wall that the standards are really different for men and women, that the implicit bias continues to impact them even after they've become partners and have developed a client following. 
that there are differences in compensation and elevation, and that even after 20, 25 years of practice, these women are still complaining about those disparities. So that's pretty distressing. Yeah, that's tough because, you know, when you start getting in your 50s, you are at the peak of your efficiency as a practitioner. One would assume. Right. I mean, you got the most experience, you have the most contacts, um, you're still young enough where you've got enough energy to really pound the ground and, and get it done. And so that's too bad that uh, you know, those are the years we start seeing people walk away from the profession. So it's not that they are starting to walk away then. They They're walking continue away to walk away every single year of practice. Wow. It's just that by age 50, almost half of them are gone. So our hope is that once we issue this report in the next month or two, we will then come back to the House of Delegates in February with some very specific recommendations about changes the legal profession needs to make to ensure that the profession and legal employers are more hospitable, both to women lawyers and minority lawyers. 2017, 2018, I've seen a lot of pretty bad sex harassment scandals at businesses, and we've seen celebrities, and I've even read at law firms, and pretty prominent law firms are having some pretty bad issues with that. And so I'm getting into the Me Too movement and kind of dovetailing the discussion about why women are leaving the profession. Obviously, that's probably part of the equation. And so in the study, were you finding some emphasis on that as well? It's certainly one of the factors. The surprising statistic that came out of the study is that almost 50% of practicing women lawyers identify that they were at some point sexually touched in an inappropriate way. Wow. 50%. Wow. And that's consistent with a recent bar study done by the Massachusetts bar and California bar as well as the Florida bar. Uh, It's a very uh, uh, sobering statistic. And, uh, you know, I think it's just something we need to be aware of. And so one of the questions I had is, so if you're in, I guess, in a situation like that, if you're a woman, is there some resources that people can reach out to to get some advice? Also, because I do think part of the problem is I, I think that guys need to be aware of this. And I think guys need to speak up as, as well. If you see one of your colleagues being harassed or treated badly, uh, you should say something. And so are there resources that you know people can resist this and, and combat this a little bit, get some information and figure out how to deal with these problems? Well, there are two separate questions. I'll be happy to address them both. One is... In February, the ABA House of Delegates voted on a new sexual harassment policy. It's a policy that we recommend every law firm or legal employer consider adopting. And it's not particularly sophisticated. It's pretty basic stuff, but it includes the type of thing, such as a no-retaliation policy against the victim, an anonymous reporting line, so somebody can go, even if they're not prepared to personally get involved in reporting against a particular individual, that there is a commitment from the most senior level of the law firm that they get reporting on the number of harassment complaints and how they were resolved. It goes on and on and on, but there are lots of resources available to women who want to learn more about it, as well as men. So, for example, the Commission on Women just this year put out a book on Zero Tolerance, How to Battle Sexual Harassment in the Legal Profession. It's a great resource, and you can acquire it online. Now, as to the bystander piece, um, many of the new research reflects that the only way we're really going to make a dent in this problem is engaging the entire workforce in the perception that this is a problem for everybody. This is not just the victim and the perpetrator. Right. Everybody has to be engaged to ensure that it ends. And so that means that 
what we used to refer to as bystanders, are now critical pieces of this puzzle. People who see things that look inappropriate need to speak up, even if it's just speaking up to the perpetrator and say, you know, I kind of think that was out of line. And let me explain why I think that and why perhaps other people who would see it would think the same. It also gives some additional level of protection to the victim, because if it's only the victim complaining all the time, it's very hard to protect that person from retaliation, inevitable retaliation, from the perpetrator and from others who know that the victim complained. So before we transition into a little bit happier topics for the ABA annual meeting, I did want to ask you about your trip down to Texas, Harlingen. Right. So about a month ago, I had the opportunity to go visit ProBar, which is an ABA immigration project where we have lawyers and paralegals on the border providing legal advice to unaccompanied minors as well as parents and families coming across the border to seek asylum. Of course, when I went, I was able to visit the Port Isabel Detention Center and speak to some of our clients, all of whom were mothers who'd been separated from their children. All I can say about it is it was a devastating experience for me personally. As a mother, as a lawyer, as a human being, you could not listen to these women without, number one, getting very emotional yourself, and number two, knowing that this is just not right. Whatever your views on immigration policy, the idea that we would literally kidnap children away from their parents, and for many of these parents, they had not spoken to their children, they did not know where they were, and they had no idea what it would take to get them back. The one consistent message was that every one of them would have given up every one of their legal claims if they would just have their children returned. And that's pretty disturbing stuff. Yeah, that's got to be a tough thing to see. So transitioning to a little bit happier topic, I uh, was reading some of the uh, the boards, the, the, the billboards around here and reading some of the literature about the 2018 annual meeting. There's been some pretty amazing guests this year. We have had an amazing meeting. Um, of course, the highlight was having Rod Rosenstein, our Deputy Attorney General, speak to a General Assembly on Thursday afternoon. Today, we're having Brian Stevenson, the recipient of the ABA Medal, speak at length to us. Tonight, there's a dinner at which Eric Holder, the wow. outgoing last or two uh, AGs ago, will be speaking. So we've just had a lineup that really shows the value of the ABA and why people should come to the annual meeting. In my understanding uh, with Rod Rosenstein was that you got to give uh, kind of a Q&A session with him. And I know that you know, obviously there's an open investigation. So he's been a little bit, what we were told is a little bit tight-lipped about taking interviews. And so what were some of the topics that uh, you got to discuss with him? Well, I talked to him about prosecutorial discretion and the zero tolerance policy and whether those were inconsistent. I talked to him about his view of uh, safe spaces for drug injection because that's such a big issue right now dealing with the opioid crisis, and then some general questions about rule of law and intervention in our elections and whether or not cybersecurity was as big a threat as many people think it is. So let's uh, let's move on to the pillars of your presidency. So you, uh, we've talked about uh, women leaving the profession, but uh, another issue near and dear to your heart is homeless youth. And we also talked about ABA fact-checked initiative Uh, diversity inclusion, and also one that seems to be getting a little bit of speed and momentum building, the Commission on the Future of Legal Ed. So where do you want to start? Okay, well, 
Why don't I start with the Commission on the Future of Legal Ed, which will remain in place next year. Excellent. As we continue to do research on what a bar exam really should look like if we were truly trying to test the competency of a 21st century lawyer. As to um, legal fact check, I'm happy to report that my predecessor, uh, my successor, excuse me, Bob Carlson, the incoming president, is going to be continuing that because we've gotten so much positive press. and So many of our members really now rely on what we say is, in fact, the law about critical issues in the public discourse. And then the Homeless Youth Project is also continuing. Um, it's really been a unique opportunity to provide opportunities for practicing lawyers to commit to spend just a few hours a month with children who are homeless for all kinds of different reasons. Maybe it's an LGBTQ child that had a run out of run away from their parents' home, or it's a foster care situation where children felt that they were being abused. Lots of reasons children become homeless, and we are finding that once attorneys provide even a small number of hours of assistance, they really get hooked because they realize they're making a real difference in that child's life by just half an hour of legal advice. And as part of that initiative, are you looking for lawyer volunteers to help we out? absolutely are. You can go on the ambar.org website and look up Homeless Youth, and it will take you to the web portion of the web where you can volunteer to be a pro bono lawyer for a homeless youth. Okay, before we dive into a little bit deeper, the Commission on the Future of Legal Ed, I want to hit up diversity and inclusion. Obviously, that was a very important initiative by your predecessor, Paulette Brown, and you carried it on. And uh, I just wanted to get an update on uh, some new programs in relation to that. Well, one of the things that we're doing as part of our women's initiative is doing a separate cohort of the study that is focused purely on women of color. Because as distressing as we know that the statistics that are coming out of the study are with reference to white women, we know that the numbers are even going to be worse with women of color. So we have a separate study that's being undertaken right now simply to focus on what is a career trajectory of women of color in the legal profession. So uh, my last question, we're running out of time here. I know you got to get on to a very busy day, but I do want to hit up some highlights from the Commission on the Future of Legal Ed. So last time we chatted, we talked a little bit about debt. Uh, we did talk a little bit about the job market, but let's skip that because we're running uh, out of time. But uh, recently I was informed that uh, the most recent bar session or people taking the bar uh, was pretty low. And so uh, that was definitely one of the things that you were focusing on. So let's, where do you want to start there? Well, it's one of the things we're studying through the Commission on the Future of Legal Ed. Why are people failing to pass the bar exam? And is the bar exam really telling us anything about the quality of legal practitioner that law grad is likely to become? So that will be a focus of our effort in next year. Uh, as we continue to do further research on what kind of bar exam makes more sense to test the competencies of a 21st century lawyer. Is there a chance that it might be kind of like the model rules that, that come out through the ABA, think about a model bar exam? Is, that, is there some talk about that? Well, what we're hoping we can do is get a few states to pilot with us an alternative exam, a component mm-hmm. or step exam is one of the examples that has been used. And if we can get just a few states to model it with us so that we can check it out and see whether or not the law grad and the employer think it's a more effective predictor of being a good quality lawyer. Okay, and let's uh, just briefly transition to debt and we'll close it out. We haven't really done any new work on debt this year. What we do know is that law school applications are up 8% for the first time in years. Many people are referring to that as the Trump effect. 
very simply the idea that Called people the are not going to law school purely because they want to make a lot of money, but because they perceive that the legal profession is an opportunity to really make a difference in ensuring that our constitutional democracy withstands challenges from all sides. Okay. Well, I know you've got to get uh, moving on to your day, but I just have one last quick question for you. If our listeners, especially because in a few days you will trade the gavel or give the gavel to Mr. Bob Carlson, who will be the new ABA president, uh, but you're still going to be working with the ABA, you still have missions and objectives to accomplish, but people are going to want to reach out. And so how can they find you? They can always reach me at BASSH, B-A-S-S-H, at G-T-L-A-W.com. Well, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank our guest, President Hillary Bass, for joining us. Thank you so much, Larry. I appreciate it. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And if you like what you heard today, please find us and rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.